The Rural Health Voice, Episode 42, Virginia Copes. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What can you do if dealing with COVID has got you down? Craig Kamage, Director of the Office of Emergency Management at the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, joined me to discuss the crisis counseling that is available free from Virginia Copes. So welcome, Craig. Hey, uh, thanks so much for having me. So give me a little background. How did you get into emergency management at DBHDS? Ooh, that's starting off with uh, with a pretty wild question. I think if any of your listeners know any emergency managers, there's uh, very few that have a linear pathway as to how they got to a, a profession in emergency management. Many of them come through some sort of public service. Maybe they worked their way through the fire service or EMS. Um, others come to emergency management from an IT standpoint, kind of along the lines of disaster recovery. Um, my story is is far more convoluted even than that. I actually, by training, am a chiropractor. I spent um, the better share of a decade in Roanoke, Virginia, taking care of neck pain and back pain on a daily basis. And um, over the course of time, it became clear that a career change was in my future. And um, I got involved with an organization out of Roanoke called the Near Southwest Preparedness Alliance, whose mission is to work with hospitals, public health departments, public safety departments, and others toward collaborative and collective planning for disasters. I got involved in that in 2015, and then you know how things go. Around about 2018, I had an opportunity to move my family out to Richmond and and do emergency management on a statewide scale with the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, and the rest is history. Here we are talking today. And now, Virginia has launched a crisis counseling program, which you're helping to promote, called Virginia Copes. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, the Virginia Copes is is one of our projects at DBHDS. It's our most recent project, and it's really born out of a federal funding opportunity that Virginia had following the COVID nineteen pandemic. Whenever uh, a disaster strikes the Commonwealth, there's a series of declarations. There may be a local declaration or a statewide declaration. And when those declarations rise to the federal level, it opens up funding streams uh, for disaster response and relief. Uh, In this case, our partners over at the Virginia Department of Emergency Management uh, have worked with the federal government to qualify Virginia for some funding through both FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, FEMA and SAMHSA uh, operate what's called the Crisis Counseling Program. And the Crisis Counseling Program is a federal grant program whereby funds are pushed out into states in the United States in order to respond to disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes, or in this case, um, the, the public health emergency that is COVID-19. Oftentimes, those crisis counseling programs include things like going door to door in a disaster struck com- community and, and ascertaining, uh, you know, who might need housing resources or who might need food resources. Of course, COVID-19 has been really different 
we haven't had any disrupted infrastructure, no destroyed buildings. What we have had is um, shelter in place and a significant decrease in social mobility. And so uh, in order to provide crisis counseling in that environment, we've created basically a virtual call center. It's a warm line service where individuals can pick up the phone and call one of our crisis counselors to talk through the things that are bothering them and to get some assistance. On the Virginia Cope's website, I see a bunch of information related to COVID, but what does the pandemic have to do with crisis counseling? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable question. And there are really two broad categories of where a public health emergency like COVID-19 is going to negatively impact citizens in the Commonwealth. The first is directly related to the the disease itself. Uh, we have all either seen, uh, experienced, heard of, or no doubt read about some of the fear, grief, and trauma that the COVID-19 uh, virus and its uh, its medical sequelae can bring upon Virginians. There have been, unfortunately, many folks that have lost loved ones and in a situation where they weren't able to be at the bedside or in the hospital with that individual. Um, and so those are very direct um, you know, assaults to our psychology that are coming specifically from COVID-19. There's trauma involved, there's fear involved, there's unresolved grief. Our ability to adapt to those circumstances has been challenged. On the other hand, uh, the the required um, responses to try to stop COVID-19 from overwhelming our healthcare system have included uh, things that are also difficult for us to deal with from a mental and behavioral health standpoint. Things like uh, stay-at-home orders uh, have us not interacting with each other as much as we typically do. And many of us, you know, base our, our positive mental health and, and some of our uh, positive psychology on interaction with others. And so whether it be directly from the COVID-19 or from the, the response to COVID-19, we have seen a, a space where many Virginians are struggling. And uh, when they are struggling, that's a crisis for them. It's not a disaster along the lines of a tornado destroying a community or a hurricane causing a mass evacuation. But nonetheless, for that individual in that moment, they are experiencing a crisis. And our Virginia Cope's warm line aims to help those individuals through that crisis by providing uh, a listening ear uh, to help them resolve anything that uh, that can be handled. So what do the counselors actually do? Is this similar to a therapy session? Well, it depends on how you define similar. Uh, and it's a great question because one of the things I want to clearly get out to your listeners is what the, what the crisis counselors do not do. And it's important to know that our crisis counselors do not actually do therapy. We don't offer any clinical behavioral health support. Uh, it's much more simple than that. Um, our crisis counselors really do three things. They listen, they connect, and they have the ability to make referrals. So if we take those, first they listen. And, you know, if I'm a citizen in Virginia, there are a lot of folks. Uh, I've been in this situation. You're going about your life. You're managing your day-to-day -day problems, your day-to-day -day world and relationship as well as you can. And then one more thing comes along, and, and that's the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? Now you're having difficulty managing your life, whether it's COVID-19 that added on top uh, or whether you were doing okay dealing with COVID-19 and then something else came around. All of a sudden, you're finding your yourself unable to cope and really in a crisis. 
our crisis counselors are ready to just non-judgmentally listen to what's going on with you, help you normalize those feelings, and help you work through those on your own. You know, one of the things we find in disaster behavioral health is that um, it is very normal for an individual to exhibit an abnormal response to an abnormal stimulus. And another way to say that, because that's kind of a loaded sentence, but when something abnormal happens to a person, an abnormal response is what's expected. And um, oftentimes people find themselves in some sort of a situation with a global pandemic that really causes a lot of fear and anxiety. And they may even know that they're acting irrationally or that they're having trouble adapting and coping. Sometimes our crisis counselors just let them know that that's okay. That's the way a lot of people are feeling these days. And so that active listening, our ability to just hear people out non-judgmentally and help them think through what it is that they're feeling uh, is, is very significant uh, for our crisis counselors and for our callers. The second thing our crisis counselors do is connect people. We have... Um, not only do we have, but we're always developing our resource catalog. And so oftentimes when disaster strikes, in this case, the public health emergency, individuals may be unaware of the local resources that they could avail themselves to help solve some of those problems. Maybe COVID-19 is causing some housing uh, stresses for a Virginian. And our crisis counselors uh, aim to be able to help connect those individuals to housing resources in their community to help them work through their problems. Again, when disaster strikes, we sometimes have difficulty just understanding what to do first and what steps to take to unwind our problem and, and get ourselves on the right path. And our crisis counselors can sometimes provide that opportunity to talk through and, and connect with local resources that can get you headed in the right direction. Finally, our crisis counselors have the ability to make referrals. It's not uncommon that an individual will call our warm line and it becomes pretty clear that the individual may need some, some more professional therapeutic or clinical care. Maybe they really could use uh, a conversation with a, a therapist. Maybe they could use a, a referral to a COVID-19 testing site for a test to clear up some, some questions or anxieties. And our crisis counselors have the ability to, again, dive into that resource catalog and make referrals for callers for more in-depth services if they're necessary. So how is this service different from, say, a suicide hotline? Yeah, they're, they're reasonably similar. And most of the difference lies in the difference between what a hotline is and what a warm line is. And the hotline that we all think about and are familiar with is 911. You pick up the phone, you call 911 when you have an urgent need that's right now. And uh, undoubtedly, if any of the listeners are, are feeling thoughts of suicide or in particular ideation of suicide, that is an immediate uh, an urgent need. And uh, whether it's 911 uh, or an, a resource like the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, those lines are staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they are prepared for immediate intervention. Our warm line, on the other hand, is a bit like calling the police department's non-emergency number. There's something that's the, that's a, that's a need. Uh, it's not you know, it's not urgent. It's not going to go south within the next five minutes if it's not dealt with. Uh, and so our warm line is operational seven days a week, uh, but not 24 hours a day. 
And the warm line is for those non-urgent needs. I just, I just need somebody to listen to me, somebody to help me work through this problem, maybe point me toward a resource or a service that could help me figure this out. Maybe I just need somebody to listen. And uh, that's really what our warm line is as opposed to a, a true hotline. So is the service only for people struggling with COVID-related issues or if you know there's maybe depression or anxiety or whatever else that's not related to COVID? Someone, who can call? So the service is open for any Virginian. And, you know, by the book, uh, the, the service is set up and funded by the federal government related to COVID-19. But when we begin to discuss issues like mental and behavioral health and emotional wellness, it's very difficult to separate things out completely, right? Oftentimes, our, our mental health, either positive or negative, is kind of a, it's a summative type thing. It's, a, it's an accumulation of everything that's happening to you. So, you know, an individual that may be dealing with some depression or anxiety or some coping challenges, um, COVID-19 is almost no doubt at some level contributing to those issues. And so, you know, the official answer is that the warm line is dedicated toward folks that are dealing with COVID-19. But I would hazard a guess that as pervasive and relentless as COVID-19 has been now in the Commonwealth for several months, uh, that most every uh, behavioral or emotional issue that people are running into is at least in some small way related to either COVID-19 or the uh, or the response uh, activities like stay in place and um, and mask wearing and other things that that we're all doing to try to prevent COVID from getting worse. So you mentioned that the funding comes from various disaster relief areas. Is this program going to stop once COVID is under control? So the funding will stop. And, uh, and honestly, the funding uh, timeline is not related to COVID-19 uh, and when it, when it ends, so to speak. Uh, the funding is just set up on a timeline. And we just received last week uh, our notification that we've been approved for an additional $996,000 to make sure that we have what it takes to continue our program straight through May of 2021. Now, we would love to be in a situation at that time where we have some sort of sustainability model and uh, some means to continue the program beyond that. Uh, That all remains to be seen. Uh, Right now, our calendar is very focused on what the next nine months look like. And uh, we'll see. One thing we've all learned is that we're not sure what COVID-19, how long it's going to last, what nine months from now is going to look like. I don't even know what next week is going to look like. And so we'll uh, we'll all experience the future together. I saw that there's also an option to text a counselor. How does that work? Same, uh, same idea. Uh, it's a pretty common thing for warm lines these days. And a lot of people, me included, if, if I have an opportunity to do an online chat with a customer service agent, I'm very much more likely to avail myself to that opportunity than to pick up the phone and call. And so to provide the, the most low conflict, um, interaction, uh, they can also, Virginians can also text that number and participate in a text conversation with a crisis counselor. Uh, again, if that's the communication that, uh, that feels more comfortable for them, we have that available. What else do people need to know about Virginia Copes? 
a couple of the things that people need to know is that we're uh, continuing to develop our service uh, as we go. This just began in March of 20, or rather in May of 2020. So our initial efforts, our first couple months really were about building the service and then raising the awareness of the service. And we've really seen uh, some uptick in momentum just in the past few weeks. Our uh, visits to our website are up 400% in just the last couple of weeks. Um, As we have uh, gained some momentum, our call volume is up. Uh, It's actually doubled just since August 9th, and that's less than two weeks ago. Uh, we are uh, actively hiring additional crisis counselors to come online to be able to handle an increased demand. And we are also continuing development. We have uh, hired a Spanish-speaking counselor uh, to try to to try to add some bilingual capability to our warm line. And we continue to explore other avenues uh, to make sure that it's as accessible to as many Virginians as possible. We also are advertising the warm line in in multiple ways, and particularly, you know, for a rural audience, um, there are uh, there are spots in Virginia that still struggle for a good and comprehensive broadband. And so, in order to counteract that, we cross referenced uh, Virginia zip codes with places where broadband is less prevalent, and we sent out half a million postcards uh, to to those zip codes that that might have had the uh, you know the lowest broadband penetration. And uh, and we've seen, as I said, a real uptick in our utilization since we did that. So uh, we're not perfect yet. There are still steps that we continue to take to make sure that our service is available to all Virginians. Uh, but we are continuing to develop in that direction. And we do aim to uh, to ensure that any Virginian has access to this service. What are some of the other barriers for someone in need of crisis counseling, whether it's through Virginia Copes or any other service? You know, that's a great question. And I think that's one of the places where Virginia Copes really can make a difference. One of the continued barriers in, in all of our society is stigma. There, there is a, an underlying feeling in communities that reaching out for help carries some sort of a negative connotation. This stigma is, uh, is, is probably most prevalent in certain professions. Uh, and it's something we talk about really commonly with, uh, like first responders, police, firefighter, EMS. In fact, in the past few years, you haven't had to look far to find, um, uh, media articles about a suicide crisis in the NYPD and other, the mental health impacts of being a first responder. And unfortunately, in those communities, that stigma, that sort of unwritten rule that reaching out for help is somehow bad is quite pervasive. And in order to counteract that, um, you have to have services like Virginia Copes online. And the reason Virginia Copes is good here is that it is, um, it's more or less anonymous. And I say it's more or less anonymous because your crisis counselor will ask your name, you know, in order to have a a conversation, but no records are kept, uh, no identifiable records. The only data that is collected through the crisis counseling program is simply about the encounter. Example, we will uh, we'll collect the data that we talked to a, a 32-year-old male for 17 minutes and connected them to the local community services board. We don't keep track of, of who that person was or, or any other detailed information. And so to the extent that VA COPES may be utilized to overcome stigma, 
Uh, we hope that it will be used in that manner. That stigma exists maybe a little less in the general public, but still some folks are skeptical to to reach out for help. And Virginia Copes really uh, has the lowest barrier to entry um, of, of any service of this type. I mean, I, I don't say that to provide any guarantee or even to be comparative, but you don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to uh, go and uh, sign up for anything anywhere. It's it's a really low barrier, and it can also help people decide whether they should seek out more in depth treatment. So barriers exist, but we aim to uh, we aim to knock them down as quickly as we can identify them. If I had a friend or family member that was struggling, maybe feeling depressed or trapped because of COVID, what could I do for that loved one? You know, that's a solid question, and, and you have to stop and think about how critical that need is. And, and we don't want to, we don't want to be uh, minimizers here. If you have a, a loved one or a colleague that is struggling, um, it's important to, uh, it's important to really think through that situation. First and foremost, if you believe that that person is in danger of harming themselves or someone else, uh, or even suffering some sort of harm based on their their mental state or their behavior, uh, it's time to either reach out to you know nine one one if it's an immediate need, or or reach out to your local community services board if it's less immediate. Now, those are the acute cases, right? And and there are processes to handle those acute incidents. But oftentimes, what we notice in our friends and colleagues and loved ones isn't that level of acuity. And the big key there is to just let people know you're there and potentially reach out and see if you can talk with them. You don't need to try to fix them. You don't need to try to solve their problems. But simply letting people know that you're there for them is a big key. One of the things I notice, and again, the majority of my work, I'm not a behavioral health counselor. Heck, a, a professional behavioral health counselor may be able to give a much better answer to this question than I can. But one of the things I notice in my disaster management work is that a lot of times people are a little reluctant to try to help when there is a, a behavioral health challenge. And at the end of the day, the first line of help is just being kind to people, just letting them know that you're willing to listen if they're willing to talk. And certainly if you're uncomfortable uh, listening in directly, uh, Virginia Copes is something you could give them information on, right? And let them know that there are third parties here that are willing to listen for as long as it takes um, to help them talk through their their issues. So that would be a good help. Again, assess what level of, of criticality we're, we're talking about and then decide how you can how you can be the most kind to that other person and, and help them work through whatever they're dealing with. Now, you mentioned your uh, less than direct career path at the beginning. If a student was interested in exploring emergency management as a career, what activities or, or steps would you encourage for them? Um, I will tell you that there are some uh, academic uh, pathways to get to emergency management these days. But I will also say that at the end of the day, uh, your ability to, to do emergency management well, whether it's in healthcare or in government or any other venue, uh, is all about leadership. 
And so I would say that developing communication, collaboration, influence, and leadership skills are, are probably the most significant um, determinant of success in an emergency management situation. The COVID-19 pandemic has, has really made that pretty clear. You know, oftentimes you may have emergency managers or other emergency personnel that are really skilled in, in one category or the other. And, you know, yes, we talked about pandemics a little bit, but nobody thought this was coming. And at the end of the day, we've all had to fall back on our, our communication and leadership skills. And so you can take a roundabout way and get to, uh, to an emergency management career and your ability to, to lead when, when there's no playbook, uh, when, when what you should do is sometimes less than clear um, and collaborate with those around you to get everybody headed in the right direction is, is really a key component of it. I guess that's what I would say. So last question. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? Holy cow, that's a big question. Um, I think, you know, I work for the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, and uh, that means I'm in that mental health industry, whether it's as an emergency manager uh, or another part of that system. And Virginia is like a lot of states that struggles with um, – with you know the the industry that the field that is behavioral health, uh, we struggle from an access standpoint. Uh, we struggle from a management standpoint. We we don't have enough uh, psychiatrists and other clinicians to to meet the needs of the population. This uh, causes issues. You hear about diseases of despair uh, and other things. We hear about um, opiate crises, particularly in in the rural parts of uh, of Virginia and of our nation. We hear about suicide crises in various populations, and those impact the rural parts. And all of that stuff is is at its core related to uh, our, our mental health, not only uh, as individuals but as a collective. And you know, we all need something to hope for. Uh, we all need some responsibility to fulfill, and we all need to avoid that nihilism and despair that can come with a, a lack of hope. And so I guess if there was one thing I could do, it would just be to have uh, as much focus as possible on not only the mental health system, but on the positive mental health of us as Virginians. Because I think a lot of the chronic disease and a lot of the way we personally manage chronic disease and, and other things is bound up in uh, those things like, like hopelessness and despair. And it's really difficult to get to the, to the root cause of a lot of that stuff. And so I guess I would, I would move us more in that direction. Um, you know, as a, as a nation, we're, we're pretty reactive to a lot of this stuff. And, and that's by necessity. That's not a criticism of, of anything that's currently taking place. But boy, when we can have an opportunity to pivot towards um, increasing people's positive mental health and dealing with things like early intervention and, and working through problems before they become acute, which, by the way, is, is one of the things that Virginia Copes uh, tries to do, I think we need to seize every opportunity like that that we can get. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. That's Craig Camage advocating for better access to behavioral health services. Links to Virginia Copes are included in the show notes for you to use and share with others. The Rural Health Voice is proud to announce that U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams will be our special guest at the Virginia Rural Health Voice Conference. Dr. Adams will be discussing the opioid crisis in rural America. Visit our website to reserve your virtual seat today. Go to vrha.org 
click the Events tab, and then select Annual Conference for details. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.